And when we make the jokes about, oh, got to make sure this is the right woman, there's this sort of undercurrent understanding of the end of the joke being, because they're all the same, aren't they? (laughs) We don't want that, do we? I don't think any of us wants that at our wedding. Are you planning a Jewish or interfaith wedding? Are you lost on where to even begin planning the ceremony, let alone finding a rabbi to help you? Well, it doesn't matter whether one of you is Jewish or you're both Jewish. You deserve a guide. So take a deep breath. I promise it will all be okay. Welcome to Your Jewish Wedding with Rabbi Leanne. Here, I can be everyone's rabbi. (laughs) Yours too. My guests and I will share everything we know to help make your Jewish or interfaith wedding full of tradition and perfectly yours. Well, hello, everyone. It is so good to be here with you on the Your Jewish Wedding Podcast with Rabbi Leanne. I, of course, am Rabbi Leanne. I'm solo today. I know we've been enjoying some episodes with some incredible guests, and guess what? We have more to look forward to in the future. But for today, I'm excited about two things. Number one, it is once again a Tuesday. I know. I feel like I am slowly pulling myself a little bit more together with the flow of this podcast. Wonderful news for me and for you, because hopefully we will be getting more consistent episodes, better production value, the whole nine. Maybe hand in hand with that, the second thing I am absolutely thrilled about today is that I have realized that this episode will be episode 18. Now, are you ready for our first tangent of the episode before I've even announced the topic? Of course. If you're wondering what in the world is going on with Jews in the number 18, whether you're Jewish or not, listen, it's possible to be Jewish and have gone through your entire life without knowing what the number 18 is. Sometimes when we're part of a culture and we don't understand part of that culture, we just never mention it because it's like embarrassing or something. But if you've learned anything from being here with me at the Your Jewish Wedding podcast, There's nothing to be embarrassed about. So let's go. The number 18 is a big deal in Jewish tradition because every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value associated with it. Okay. So in the English alphabet, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three. You get you get the picture. So in the Hebrew alphabet, those letters are actually used as numbers to number like Bible verses and stuff, okay? So the letters have had numbers for a long time. Now, I believe that the practice of trying to figure out the numerical value of entire words is maybe like a later development, maybe like a little, you know, like Hebrew Jewish rabbi Sudoku thing that the rabbis did for fun and to find extra ways to explain cool words and coincidences and in the Torah portion and in values and stuff like that. Anyhow, The Hebrew letter chet has a numerical value of eight, and the Hebrew letter yud has a numerical value of 10. The word chai, which means life, is spelled chet yud, eight, 10. So eight plus 10 is, of course, 18, right? Jews, for whatever reason, of all the words (laughs) that add up to all the numbers, have taken this word chai adding up to 18, the most seriously. Now, I am not throwing shade at other Jews because if you know me, you know that I consider myself a very superstitious person. In fact, I do not charge any amounts that are not multiples of 18. Okay, so if you go on my website and look at my prices for my services, everything's a multiple of 18. If a couple is, if I'm charging a couple for uh, travel, over 50 miles outside the Columbus, Ohio area. I calculate the mileage, like according to my fees, and then I round down to the nearest multiple of 18. It's a very serious thing, right? Because if if the Jewish people have treated this number 18 like with so much importance for this long, who am I? 
Who am I to disregard, you know, how careful people have been about the number 18? By the way, people know the importance of the number 18 to Jews in the fundraising space. So when it was time for the 2020 presidential election, for example, I would get pop-up windows in certain websites asking me to donate, of course. Now, based on my internet activity, all the campaigns know I'm Jewish. Wouldn't you know it? The donation choices were $36, $72, $180, right? All the multiples of 18, they knew. Maybe it was because I had already donated in multiples of 18. I don't know. But that's how you get Jews, honestly, to donate. If if you are in a nonprofit space and you're trying to encourage Jewish donors to send you money, write in your letters, multiples of 18. 18 means life. When we want to give life to important things, we do it in multiples of 18, especially with money. Okay. So the fact that this is episode number 18, I didn't plan it this way. I actually have a couple episodes recorded that will air after this episode records. This is a classic case of me completely forgetting to add a step in the traditional Jewish wedding day. So I've recorded a couple steps after this one. Anyway, today happens to be a Jewish wedding tradition that I have come to love and adore. We are talking about the bedeckin. The bedeckin is one of those things that is very old country. So if you are a couple like my September 2023 couple, you know who you are, who is very into the whole old country thing. You know, her people came from, gosh, where did her people come from? Latvia? His people came from Hungary. Anything that they could do to connect to their ancestors' traditions from the old country, they were going to do it. So of course, they were like, of course, we're going to do the bedeckin. Bedeckin is a Germanic Yiddish word. Okay. So it's from a Germanic strain, I guess. Of There's a better word for that. Linguists, send me an email. Tell me how badly I'm doing. It's from uh, the Germanic arm, I guess, of the Yiddish language. And you can tell it's Germanic because it sounds so much like an English word, bedeck, like bedeck the halls with boughs of holly. Okay, it's deck. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, right? Is that right? I don't know. We have a Hanukkah party playlist. We don't, the only Christmas song we really listen to is, you guys can guess what it is, can't you? You already know. I don't have to say it. Of course, it's all I want for Christmas is you. Okay. (laughs) We have already gone off on so many tangents. Anyway, bedeck in, bedecken means to decorate or to adorn. And it's the moment in the ceremony, or rather before the actual wedding ceremony, where traditionally the groom lowers the veil over the bride's face. Okay. After the groom's tish and the bride's throne, which we talked about in the last episode, episode 17, the bride will accept the groom into her presence. That whole thing we talked about with the groom's guys marching him into the room where the bride has been sitting on her throne receiving guests and accepting blessings from people who are asking for her special blessing on her wedding day. The bedeckin happens after that. The groom will give her one final look before the chuppah, look right into her eyes and confirm that she is the one. Yes, this is my bride. Now, I make a lot of jokes about this, but in all seriousness, the bedakin, so in old country Jewish tradition, is the OG first look. I'm old enough to remember when the American wedding tradition was that the bride and groom or the people getting married did not see one another at all, not for one second on their wedding day until one of them walked down the aisle to meet the other one of them. We're going back to my whole heteronormative disclaimer when I'm talking about wedding traditions in which are several decades in the past, I'm going to be talking about brides and grooms. It was the American wedding tradition. The groom waits at the end of the aisle. The bride's dad walks her in to the wedding ceremony space. He walks her down the aisle. And as she's rounding the corner to walk down that aisle is when the groom sees her for the first time all day maybe all weekend. I don't know. But that was the big deal. That was the first look. Why? Because 
It's very emotional. It shows he's prepared. You know, you can make an argument that he was ready to marry her no matter what she looked like on that day. I don't know. We can make an explanation for anything, right? But anyway, in the 1980s, 1990s, it really was the American tradition that they did not see each other at all on their wedding day until the ceremony itself. Wedding planners, if you've been in the business for a long time, please email me and let me know your Jewish wedding podcast at gmail.com. When did this whole first look thing start? I've complained about first looks at least twice on this podcast. I, I do it. Listen, I do it all in good fun. Please understand. I'm just joking. But the first looks, we've got a lot of first looks now. The conception of the first look, when did that become popular? I really want to know. I Not enough to research it right now, but I do want to know. At any rate, I think that those of us who work in the wedding industry have this sense that it's kind of a new thing. Guess what? It's not a new thing. The Jews, the old country like Germanic Jews, that was the OG first look, this Bedeccan that we're talking about today, okay? Now, there's a commonly known backstory among Jews and that, you know, rabbis will commonly bring out when we're talking about the Bedeccan, that it goes back all the way to the story of Jacob and Leah slash Rachel in the Bible. Okay, that slash is very important. You will hear why in a moment. So going back to the Bible days, I feel like it's been a few episodes since we have gone back to Bible days. So what a pleasure. There's a story in Genesis, which I've said before. If you're looking for big drama, wild reading, really juicy stuff, get your Bible or open it on your computer, read the book of Genesis. You will be shocked and scandalized, I promise. So there's a story of Jacob and Rachel. So Jacob, he was involved in some shady business. Let's just say that. He needed to change locations quickly from his his home, from his place of birth, okay? So... He traveled for several days, finally found a place. Remember, we're in the desert. Finally found a place to get a drink of water and chill. A little oasis city situation. Saw a young woman in the town square. I am talking about actual love at first sight. Something within Jacob shifted in that moment. You know, if you read the actual text, it says, when he saw Rachel... She was so beautiful and he fell so instantly in love with her that the Hebrew text, I believe, this is my best recollection, says he raised his voice and wept with how astounded he was by seeing her. Love at first sight. Nothing like it, right? We have no parallel. So anyway, he wants to marry Rachel and she seems like amenable. So he goes and what else? Talks to her dad. And her dad's like, yeah, sure. I mean, I've got another daughter. And, you know, back then girls were worthless anyway. So he says, sure, no problem. Well, they're preparing for the wedding feast and they're, you know, cooking all the food and inviting all the people. And Rachel's dad, Levant, starts to feel some kind of way about this because it's not their custom to marry the younger daughter before the older daughter. And Rachel happens to be the younger daughter and her sister Leah is not married yet. So her dad is like, I really don't feel good about this. I don't know if it was like a superstition thing or what. It doesn't really tell us. Long story short, he brings his daughter as a bride to Jacob. It's at the beautiful wedding celebration and she's got a veil on. You know, it's the custom of their people. He can't see her face. They get married. He lifts the veil and it is not Rachel. I know. I told you it was scandalous. Who isn't? But her sister, Leah, who he did not love. He's all upset. He tells her dad, what is this nonsense? Now I've got this wife. I meant to marry her sister. I didn't really want to marry her. Her dad was like, chill out. Just work for me for seven years and I'll let you marry Rachel too. And that's what he did. So people helping with Jewish weddings will say, this is the reason for the custom that we lower the veil over the bride's face. I mean, it's interesting that the story connects that way, but most likely we do the custom of lowering the veil over the bride's face because it was adopted from some other culture. I don't know. I don't really know. I couldn't find anything about the origins of the Bedakin, like in serious archaeological research. This is one of those things 
that in Jewish tradition, we we don't really know where or how it started, okay? But to a certain extent, it doesn't matter because we have given it so many explanations and attached so many stories to it and done the ritual and the custom over and over and over again that just the fact that we have repeated it so often and told the story so often gives that ritual meaning, okay? So traditionally, I read on a Chabad website, which I will link in the show notes, that the Chabad website, Chabad, by the way, is a movement of Orthodox Jews. So they, you know, keep Shabbat. They're very, very observant, observe all the laws to the best of their understanding, Orthodox Jews. So, and they're big into outreach too. It's a, it's a big focus of the Chabad movement that as many Jews as can be involved in Jewish life and observing commandments and observing a Jewish way of life, they should be encouraged to do that. So they have really cool websites with with some great information. I will link the website in the show notes. So this website said that according to some authorities, the Bedeccan was the same as standing under the chuppah originally. Okay, so it was like a mini chuppah, right? Imagine this veil, right? It's just a smaller cloth. It's just a little cloth that, you know, he the groom would lower over the bride's face and it was gave the same effect or or the same vibe, I guess, as standing under the chuppah. I don't know. Maybe the couple couldn't afford a chuppah, even though it's a really simple structure. I'm not going to go there now. That's for the next episode. But the Chabad website didn't cite those sources. And if you guys have met me or talked with me about any of this stuff, you know that it's really important to me to try and find sources as much as possible. But again, we might not have a source for it. So. Moving on, the original thing that a groom would say in the old country during this ritual of of meeting his bride and and lowering her veil over her face is achotenu at hayi le'alfei revava, which is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 24, verse 60. That means, our sister, may you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands of descendants is implied. This is actually the thing that Isaac said to Rebecca in the book of Genesis. That's a whole different drama that began the drama that we started with in this episode. Regardless, on the surface, this verse, may you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, it feels a little reproduction obsessed creepy, right? Doesn't it? It's a little handmaid's tale. It's a little birth focused. And I think many of us, myself included, (laughs) sort of looked at that verse and were like, I don't want to say that. Whatever. When I got married, I do think my husband said that to me. Actually, I think he only said it in Hebrew because I was like, please don't translate it. And that was like the compromise our rabbi made with us. Our rabbi was very old school, by the way. She was very like by the book, which, you know, fine. Anyway, that is traditional for, for that to be said and that to be said out loud. And a lot of people really want to preserve the tradition, right? We opened with saying this is an old country tradition, okay? So a lot of people really want to preserve the authenticity of that. And, you know, if you follow me on Instagram, if you've gone to my website, my brand, the first thing that defines my brand is authentic. Who am I to argue with the may you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands? If you're considering doing this ritual of the Bedeccan, or if you're assuming you will do this ritual of the Bedeccan, and that's what you want to say, Zygazet, enjoy yourselves. You know, suit yourself. It doesn't bother me. And I I do kind of like the traditional nature of it. Okay. But if you don't like the sound of this reading, that's fine. Okay. What are we here for? You all know by now, we are here to learn about the Jewish wedding traditions, the old country ones, the lesser known ones, and to see if it is possible that you might want to incorporate them in whole or in part into your wedding day. Great. Wonderful. So now that we've heard about the traditional ritual, the OG Jewish first look, even if you don't love the reading that goes along with it, the tradition that goes along with it, let's think about ways that you might be able or you might like to, or you might feel really moved to include this ritual in your own wedding ceremony. We will take a short break. And when we come back, we will do just that. Welcome back. I want to start this segment by letting you all know how couples, even in Orthodox spaces, have really picked up this ritual 
and made it contemporary in a really beautiful way. So it's pretty common for Jewish weddings, especially for Orthodox Jewish weddings, to assume that the couple will be doing this ritual. But you can imagine that, you know, anything that seems old school or weird or super old country or any of that to us is going to seem that way to contemporary Orthodox couples too, right? Like they live in the real world. It's modern. And they also have wedding Instagram and they also want their wedding ceremonies to be maximized, personalized, individualized, and sentimental. You know, they don't want a cookie cutter wedding. They want to feel like the incredible king and queen or queen and queen or king and king that they are on their day just as much as any other American wedding couple, right? So I have seen in the past couple decades that this moment, the Bedeckin, when the groom's party or when one of the parties first enters the space of the bride's party, of course, it's the big singing, dancing thing. But when the groom reaches the bride or when the groom's party reaches the bride, time just sort of comes to a standstill, it kind of just stops and things become serious and emotional. Now, I'm not sure of the exact order that people do this, but I know that couples have also taken this opportunity for any of the men who are close to the bride to offer her blessings. And so I believe that it would be her brothers, perhaps, then her dad. So this would, in fact, be the last blessing that the bride's father would give her before she gets married. And we will talk about this much more in the next episode on the chuppah and what it symbolizes. But on the wedding day, the idea is that in Jewish tradition, yes, obviously we are celebrating these two people loving each other and beginning a new life together. But the central idea, the central theme of the wedding day as a whole is these two people are building a home. It's really, they're really growing up in the most serious of ways. And so when the bride's father gives her a blessing right before the bedeckin begins, it is the last blessing he will give her while she is part of his household, right? Because after today, she has her own household. So it can be very emotional. And I've seen lots of brides and their fathers, you know, getting teary over this. Fine. Brothers, dads, all the stuff, as with any sort of drawn out emotional moment, what? Insert ding, ding, ding sound effect here. Yes, the photographer loves it. So, but now dad has given his blessing to the bride. And this might be one thing that you would like to incorporate into your wedding day. You might not want to make your dad say his quote unquote goodbye to you at the ceremony for everyone to see. I know that there's been a trend in contemporary American weddings for the couple's vows to one another to actually be private and not to be settled out at the ceremony, this kind of goes along those same lines. If you know that your dad or your mom is going to be really emotional at that last time they speak to you when you are still part of their household, consider asking them, hey, mom, hey, dad, do you want a moment where you give me a blessing or read me something or whatever that doesn't have to be in front of the dozens or even hundreds of guests, you know, standing up at the chuppah? They might really jump at that chance and feel a lot better about it. I personally, I tend to be a more private person. I think that if I had that option to give my child a blessing before the chuppah, I might take it, you know, to just have that moment held for me. Anyway, so once we've gone through the brothers and the dad, all the parents, it comes time for traditionally the groom to approach the bride. But I guess if we're talking about this ritual, let's, you know, let's just talk about maybe the one who's wearing the veil. <laughs> maybe veils won't even be involved. But when the couple approaches one another in this moment of Bedeckin, it's the final checkpoint, right? Going back to that Bible story. But I do think that there is, there can be a very sweet interpretation of this whole thing of like, oh, just checking to make sure you're the right one. Um, especially if if there's like a twin situation or siblings look really close to one another, you know, we might have jokes about like, are you sure this is the right sister or whatever? But I do think that there is 
a sweet, meaningful, actually, and very moving moment that we can have here. And that is actually what I have seen, you know, Orthodox couples doing. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a check off the checklist done. It's not like that. Because I have seen this evolution of the Bedeccan ceremony where the groom approaches the bride and he sees her. And as I mentioned in the last episode, there is in Orthodox or more traditional communities a custom of the couple not seeing one another for days before their wedding date. There, Yes, of course, there is that emotion of the actual first look. The per- your person is there looking incredible, waiting for you. And in the Orthodox and traditional weddings that I've seen this being reinvented, the groom approaches the bride. She's on the throne. She looks, of course, flawless. And he is overcome with emotion and he approaches her. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but in some of the cases, it seems like it is all he can do to not kneel down in front of her and really have an emotional moment like Jacob had when he first saw Rachel. This is a chance not to check whether she's the right girl. You know, not like women are interchangeable like chattel, okay? We're not. That has not been the vibe of this, probably ever, but if if it ever was, not for a long time. We say it in a jokey-jokey manner, but I want to pause and say that even the jokes we make, they're funny because someone at some point found some kernel of truth in them, right? And when we make the jokes about oh, got to make sure this is the right woman. There's this sort of undercurrent understanding of the end of the joke being because they're all the same, aren't they? Now, we don't want that, do we? I don't think any of us wants that at our wedding. Not anyone from any level of Jewish observance, okay? What it is now is looking into that person's eyes and saying and, and feeling that feeling that happens when you see him or her waiting for you and saying, yep, this is the one. This is it. I'm looking into the eyes of the person that I want to see face-to-face every day for God willing the rest of my life. This is it. And I think that that is a truly beautiful thing to sort of want to build space for in your wedding day, okay? So let's say that you don't like this traditionally read verse of, may you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, right? Women are more than chattel, obviously. We're more than our reproductive organs. So a lot of couples are like instantly, yes, definitely. Let's make this more egalitarian. Let's make it less about children. So you can do that. You can achieve that in many, many, many different ways, okay? First of all, the male does not have to be the only one who says something, right? Both bride and groom both groom and groom or both bride and bride should ideally, I guess, be overcome by this emotion of I'm looking into the face of my person, the one person in the whole world, right? So first thing you can do is make it more egalitarian by each picking something to say. So each of you gets something to say or you say something together. You can keep it traditional by just just pick something from the Bible, right? There are lots of verses in the Bible. One we've used in some of my weddings is a verse from Song of Songs, which is the original biblical love poem. It's absolutely stunning. And there is a verse that says, I have found the one who my soul loves. How beautiful. And I think it really captures that feeling of, yep, you're it. I found you. And right now we are going to go to the chuppah and make sure that neither of us ever lets go. If you don't like Song of Songs for whatever reason, okay, you can find other traditional texts. There are plenty out there, right? There's even one that comes from the Baal Shem Tov, who was an early modern Jewish scholar, inspirational leader. And there's this quote that a lot of people love to use at weddings that says this, when two, or stop, go back, delete from, that says this, that says this, from every human being, there rises a light that reaches straight to heaven. And when two souls that are destined to be together find each other, their streams of light flow together and a single brighter light goes forth from their united being. Absolutely beautiful. Now, a little background on the Baal Shem Tov. His main teaching vibe was 
that there's a little bit of God in every single person. So when we have moments of extreme emotion or really ground shifting moments, for example, our wedding day, that is when we are most in connection with that little piece of God in each of us. And so, you know, on our wedding day, when we do this ritual of bedecken and we look into one another's eyes and confirm that it's sort of like, I don't know, what was it? Power Rangers? They had to combine all their powers together. (laughs) And then, you know, they were stronger. Is that Power Rangers? I think it was. You guys let me know. I have a very poor memory for like Saturday morning cartoons from my childhood, except for X-Men. I love the X-Men. Anyway, (laughs) side note, if you are looking for some readings from your wedding and you are an interfaith couple, or you are a couple who wants to include a unity candle ritual, which was used by both religious and non-religious couples you know, in decades past. And so if that's something that you want to continue from maybe carrying over from your parents' wedding, for example, and you need a reading for that unity candle moment, because you know when you're lighting the unity candle, there's a especially like if the lighter's not working or something, it it can be actually more difficult than people realize to light a candle. Seriously, if you know, you know, right? But if you're looking for a reading to fill that little moment, this is a great one from the Baal Shem Tov that I just quoted, which I will link in the show notes to sort of fill that space and also to give somebody an opportunity to do a reading. If you don't have anybody in your life that you want to trust with a reading, it's fine. Your officiant can do it. I know it's a tangent, but this is a great way to make the unity candle ritual like a little more dewy. So just keep that in your back pocket. Okay, tangent. You might say, okay, Rabbi Leanne, we get it. There's lots of biblical readings. There's lots of traditional poems and stuff like that that are dewy that we can read, but it still doesn't change the fact that we've got traditionally this heteronormative thing of the groom lowering the veil over the bride's face. Fine. Let's make it more egalitarian, especially if you are a male-female couple. Let's really strive to show that you're egalitarian. Let's have the bride put something on the groom's head as well. So this is the point at which a lot of brides will put a kippah, a yarmulke, on their groom's head. So it's she's getting her veil, he's getting his yarmulke. They're both considered to some degree like holy or you know, Jewish signaling objects. It shows that they're prepared for the chuppah. Great. Easy peasy. Sometimes a groom will wear um, what's called a kittle, which is like a white, um, it's like shirt material, but it's kind of like a cardigan with a belt, (laughs) but it's like a white shirt material. It goes over his suit and it is also used on Yom Kippur, same color because white is um, a symbol of purity. And we've already talked about how there are parallels between wedding day and Yom Kippur, the bride and groom are closer to God. They want to make sure that they're super holy. So it it is an option also for the bride to put the groom's kittle on him. Okay. So it does not have to be just the groom lowering the veil over the bride. If that's something that feels really misogynistic to you, listen, I get it, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not just about the symbolism that's involved. It's also about how it makes you feel. You don't want to be doing any rituals that regardless of what they mean or regardless of how often Rabbi Leanne or whoever rabbi or whatever podcast has explained that, oh, that's not really the meaning. If it feels gross to you, you're not going to want to do it. And I don't want you to do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable in any way, especially not on your wedding day. So, you know, obviously that's what's most important to me. If the groom lowering the veil over the bride's face feels like patriarchal or condescending or patronizing in any way and you don't like it, then then don't do it. You can actually do this ritual without a veil or without a kippah or without putting anything on anybody. Okay. It's not that important. What's most important, I think, and what really touches couples the most is is that look, that moment. It is the OG first look, and it is really Jewish, okay? So those are both reasons that you might want to incorporate it. So there are other choices for saying stuff, though, okay? You don't have to say a Bible verse. And I have seen in these contemporary Orthodox and traditional weddings, the groom will say that verse, may you be the mother of myriads, whatever. But then he leans in and says something in the bride's ear. 
something very quiet that's just between the two of them. And often you will see her become very visibly, obviously moved by whatever he's saying to her. It's just like private vows. You know, and I think it's really cool that there is that moment built in that with all the hustle and bustle and all the joyousness and all of everything, the bride and the groom, the people getting married are taking that moment to start to build the space where they are the only two people in the world. So there are other choices for things you can say. You don't have to say a Bible verse. You don't have to quote the Baal Shem Tov or any rabbi or whoever. Okay. You can find a song lyric that you love, a poem that you love, quotes from your favorite movie. You can do personal that. You can do a personal bedeckin. You can also choose this to be something a little shtick that the rabbi does with you. You know, I'm happy when I'm officiating a wedding and the couple says, yeah, you know, we'd like to do a bedeckin. Depending on the vibe in the room, I can, you know, I can make jokes. You can make it a little jokey without being misogynistic, right? Like, you could say, you're just checking one more time. Just want to confirm in front of all these people. This is the, the person, right? This is it. And, you know, people laugh or they chuckle and they're like, yep, yep, this is it. And sometimes they get emotional and the little joke is a way to help them recover from being, you know, for clumped, from being a little overwhelmed. And that's wonderful. And once again, anytime you have a little bit of jokiness or a little bit of awkwardness, who loves it? That's right. The photographer loves it because that is when the absolute sweetest looks happen between people. When they're both feeling a little awkward or they're both feeling a little, oh man, this is something I'm not familiar with. That is when you see, in all seriousness, that is when you see couples leaning on each other, looking to one another for that anchor of support in the room. And that's that's really what the bedeckin is, isn't it? We're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we will talk about where to put the bedeckin on your wedding day and why I think you definitely do want to include a bedeckin or really, really valid reasons why you might not want to when we get back. Welcome back, everyone. I just had to do like a little game of the floor is lava, except the floor is not lava. The floor is Gaston, my giant Labrador Newfoundland mix, who is literally always at my feet. If you follow my Instagram and you see my stories when I post some of my early morning walks, sometimes he is the dog that you usually see. I walk him first. Um, There's two other ones, but he's the one who's always with me. And I almost did a nosedive into the microphone here. Thankfully, I didn't trying to step over him, but that's okay. I'm grateful for his company and I love him very much. Okay. So this all sounds fine, Rabbi Leanne. We're going to do the bedeckin, but where should we put it in the ceremony? Now, the ketubah ceremony, traditionally, that comes before the bedeckin. Why? Because the ketubah is classically, legally, a legal contract, right? It's just the stuff the bride and groom are bringing. It's been agreed to before to- beforehand. And also traditionally what? The bride does not even sign the ketubah. So in a traditional Jewish order of events for a Jewish wedding, it's ketubah, bedeckin, chuppah. But you might be saying, Rabbi Leanne, that doesn't make any sense. And you would be right. Why? Because shouldn't if you're both signing the ketubah, shouldn't you confirm that it's the right person that you're signing the ketubah about before you sign it? Yes, absolutely. That would be that would make sense. It would make sense that you would do the bedeckin before the ketubah. The problem that I see with that, that I find with that, is the mood. So when we start with the ketubah, we are starting from the legal arrangements right? The documentation, the signing that we are doing as part of this ceremony. It is the driest, probably least personal part of your ceremony, you know, traditionally, maybe not in actuality. And the bedeckin, if we do it, the lowering of the veil can be really, really emotional. So there's this sense of moving from like the less emotional to the more emotional. And then of course, the most emotional, which would be the chuppah, the most spiritual, the most focused. You know, additionally, if you are a contemporary couple, and you've got at least one bride or even two brides 
And imagine you've got these two brides and they're lowering veils over each other's faces. Now they're going to sign a ketubah with the veils over their faces? I don't know. It's totally possible that you could do a little workaround and lower the veil and then unlower the veil and you know, the whole rigmarole. And that would be totally fine. Okay. So I think it makes sense either way. However, I do think that unless you really intentionally make the ketubah ceremony like a very emotional, connectivity focused thing, it's more of like that family celebration vibe when the when contemporary liberal couples sign the ketubah. So that's why I think in in more liberal circles or with, you know, with reform or conservative weddings, the flow has really changed to ketubah first, both of them sign. Then we do the last check. Is this your person? Yes, this is the person. Yes, this is the person that I am saying our favorite song lyrics to. You know, I had a couple earlier this year. Oh gosh, almost a whole year ago now. You guys know who you are. There was an Adele song lyric that they said to one another. I wasn't ready then, but I'm ready now. It was, she was like crying her mascara off already. It was so sweet. And he was very emotional too, actually. Now that I now that I remember it, he was really nervous, but he was actually choked up as well. Very sweet. You're looking into their eyes. You're saying this thing. Then you're going to go sign a ketubah? I don't think so. I don't think it fits with the vibe, okay? So, you know, in a more contemporary, in a, in a more liberal ceremony, the couple signing the ketubah, they're waiting for their witnesses to do it. They're giving their last hugs to the witnesses. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Maybe people are having champagne after the ketubah goes into its frame, right? We want her to be safe and sound. Then they do the bedecken, okay? However, you do what you want, obviously. If I talk to a couple, like if you call me and either I'm helping you plan your ceremony or I'm officiating your ceremony and you're like, Rabbi, we just want bedecken first then ketubah, then chuppah, fine. We'll make it happen. It doesn't matter, okay? But I do I do think that it's best to have ketubah, then bedak, and then chuppah. In my experience, maybe you prove me wrong. You know, listen, we're flexible. Okay, now for the final part of our podcast, let's talk about the arguments that I've heard against doing bedakin, and we'll talk about them, okay? We mentioned this a little bit before, but some people feel like they get this feeling from it, like there's an emphasis on modesty right? Because what we are doing is covering up traditionally the bride's face. And that's something, you know, it feels a little bit like the little mermaid. We're just going to take your voice. You just have to be in disguise. Guys, there's a Disney movie where the princess is in disguise the whole time. What is it? I mean, it's not Mulan. That's, I mean, she is in disguise the whole time, but that's a whole other can of worms right there because she's in disguise as a guy. And then that's a whole other wonderful, interesting conversation hmm, you have to hide yourself in order to be attractive. What's the Disney movie like that? Anyway, The Little Mermaid, they took her voice. And that was the only way that she could interact with the prince. Ugh, I still don't like it. If you're a fan of The Little Mermaid, you know more power to you. Enjoy yourself. And I hope you liked the live action. I saw the actress. She was very sweet. The actor I didn't like so much. And Ursula is one of my favorite Disney villains. The fact remains that Ariel's entire voice got taken away. And that is when she was attractive to Prince Ariel. Come on. Come on. I can't with that. All right. Another tangent. Okay. So we don't want that emphasis on modesty being important that that she remains covered up. She remains something special only for him to see. Okay. According to this heteronormative sense of lowering the veil over your future wife. Ugh. Okay. I get it. All right. We definitely don't want that sort of reproductive emphasis that we talked about, especially guys, if there is, um, you know, infertility in your family or you are concerned about that for yourself. Um, you know, we don't want to put that emphasis on may you have lots and lots of children, like gross, right? So I hear that a lot. And to that, I say, listen, if you want to find a way to do the bedecken that doesn't give that yucky feeling of purity or whatever, you could just not involve the veil, okay? Whatever. A lot of brides don't even use a veil. I don't know. It could be an opportunity for the couple to give one another gifts, to present one another with that last thing they're going to wear before they go and wear it under the chuppah together. I don't know. Why not? 
the veil's just something you wear, right? So if that's your biggest resistance, like, oh, you know, Rabbi, I really like the idea of looking into my beloved's eyes and saying to him or her how important and profound this moment is for me, but I don't really like the veil thing, then, then ditch the veil. You guys knew I was going to say it. You don't like part of a ritual. We'll just get rid of that part. It's okay. All right. Another argument I hear is that it is awkward. Like it's unfamiliar. Nobody at your wedding has ever seen this happen. You've never seen it happen. It was never something you imagined as part of your wedding day. And you're, and it's, it's too much of a fuss and you're just not going to do it. Fine. Then we don't have to do it. You know, if it doesn't speak to you or it's not that important or whatever, or you, listen, you're just crunched for time, then, then don't do it. It's, it's really okay. This is just a custom. It's not a religious requirement at all. Okay. Or, you know, I guess on the flip side, if you feel like it's too private, like it's too intense for people to see, right? Because we talked about it like it's part or it's um, reminiscent of the private vows or even the private letter that a bride and groom might write to one another for them to read privately. And you're like, you know, all due respect, I understand that it's a Jewish tradition for us to do that in front of everybody, but that's just not our style. We don't like to do that kind of private thing and you know, try and make each other cry in front of everyone. Rabbi, that's why we're doing the traditional vows at the wedding instead of ones we wrote ourselves because we don't want to have like those emotions on display for everyone. Okay, then don't. And in fact, I'm really glad that you are recognizing that, you know, some things we want to keep private between the two of us. I think that's really healthy and really wonderful. And I hope you know that whatever your reason for doing or not doing any of this stuff, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to try and like cajole you into doing more Jewish stuff because who who cares? You know, we've talked about the reason that I love officiating Jewish weddings. It's not so that I can plan as many Bedeccan rituals as possible, right? It's not that. It's about the two of you and the home you're building and the legacy that you are carrying on of the Jewish people and your pride in Jewish culture and your respect for Jewish tradition. It, there are so many traditions on a Jewish wedding day that if you call me to help you plan your Jewish wedding or to officiate your Jewish wedding and you do one of those traditions, okay, I'll be thrilled. I'm not going to argue with you. I just want to give you the opportunity because if you listen to the Jewish wedding story episode of Esty and Ira's wedding, I will link it in the show notes. She said a few times, listen, I'm only planning to do this once. She didn't want to miss an opportunity to do something that she might have regretted not doing later. So that's really the spirit with which I come to this conversation about, you know, pushing back like, oh, you don't like this, but consider that. Okay. I mean, the last thing that a lot of people tell me is like, well, we we would think about doing that, but we're not we're not wearing veils or I'm not wearing a veil, depending on if you, if you have one bride or two, obviously. But um, that's okay. You know, like I said, you can incorporate other stuff. You can give each other a gift. You can incorporate maybe even family heirlooms at that time. If there's a family heirloom that you want to exchange or that you want to officially integrate as part of your Jewish household, but you don't want to do it under the chuppah for whatever reason, or we couldn't find a good place to put it under the chuppah, we can make this a moment of, I'm declaring that you are the person that I am proud to bring into my personal family's traditions and to build a new household of traditions with you. I'm looking at you. Yep, you're the one. And here's the kiddush cup that we're going to use at every holiday. I don't know. I don't know. Or here's the ring that I'm about to give you under the chuppah. And it was my mom's ring or whatever it was. Like Esty said that she used Ira's family's rings that they had used only for the Jewish ceremony, which is a very actually old country thing as well, that they had designated rings for the ceremony, but not for their everyday wear. Fine. You know, we can really brainstorm ways to make this into your very own version of the traditional Bedeccan ceremony. Okay. And we'll just finish up. We're going to finish strong, y'all, with reasons that you might really be moved to have a bedeckin. Maybe you didn't even know about a bedeckin before you heard this episode, or maybe you'd read about it and been like, eh, that seems weird. I'm not doing it. But now you're sort of like turning the corner. Okay. So here are my last ditch things that I want you to think about before, you know, you absolutely say no or before you table the bedeckin. Okay. If you are looking for a way to not have people walk you down the aisle. Okay. This is a very non-traditional consideration. We will touch on this in another episode, I believe in the next episode. Maybe not. Don't quote me on that. But the processional down to the chuppah 
whether you're going by the standard American tradition or by the Jewish tradition, you're going to have someone walking you down that aisle. Maybe just the bride, maybe the bride and groom, or obviously the bride and bride and the groom and groom. Traditional to have people walking them down the aisle. If you don't want that, if you and your beloved want to walk down the aisle together for egalitarian reasons or for personal reasons or whatever it is, but you still want to honor a parent or an adult that was really significant in your life, but maybe you don't want to do it in front of everybody. Or if you have mom and dad at the wedding, but your stepmom or stepdad was really important in your life and you want to give that person a moment, you can pull from the contemporary Orthodox traditional custom of letting dad come in and give his final blessing to his daughter at that time, transfer that to any of your parents, to either of you, right? Whether you're two grooms and both sets of parents or parents and step-parents or parents and grandparents want to have that moment of quote unquote giving you away, right? Passing you off into that phase where you are having your own official household, right? You're no longer part of their household. And maybe for your parents, that moment would have been quote unquote giving you away during the walk down the aisle. But for whatever reason, you don't like that. Use this Bedeckin moment as a chance for them to do that, okay? So sign your ketubah, have your rabbi or officiant do a shtick about this whole creating a new household thing. Now the step parents are going to give their final blessing, whatever, in this small space right after the ketubah ceremony, okay? By the way, I learned that in Sephardic ceremonies or in Sephardic tradition communities, the Bedeccan ceremony takes place in the aisle itself. I did find a source for this and I think I've put it in the show notes. So if I don't, you know, email me at yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com and yell at me and I'll find the source for you. So the way it works is this. In a traditional Sephardi Jewish wedding ceremony, the groom walks to the chuppah with his parents, waits there. The bride starts at the end of the aisle with both of her parents. Her parents walk her halfway down the aisle. While they, once they leave her side, the groom walks halfway down the aisle to meet her. And that is the point at which he does the lowering of the veil, the saying something special to her. It really is a combo, I guess, of a traditional American first look, which is he sees her for the first time when she's coming down the aisle, and this OG sort of Jewish first look where he's seeing her and confirming like, yep, you're the one. And she's looking into his eyes and saying, yep, you're the one. This is it for both of us. And then pulling that veil over her face, that actually does happen halfway down the aisle in a very traditional Sephardic wedding ceremony. Oh, side note, if you don't know what Sephardic is, um, the Sephardic tradition comes from the portion of Jewish exile, which was in the more um, Southern and South Eastern European communities, as well as um, as well as Middle Eastern communities and um, African communities. So we're talking about from Spain all the way through like Iran, like the Jewish communities who were in exile from the land of Israel in those places. That is what we commonly refer to as Sephardic. And as you can imagine, they developed very different customs, not just for weddings, but for pretty much all of Jewish life than the Jews in exile in like the European communities did. So when we talk about Sephardic, we're just talking about like Jews in different parts of the world as they went through life, you know, separated from other Jews in the world. They developed their own customs, whether they, that was part of just community practice and it became something very important to them or whether it was something they picked up from surrounding communities. Okay. So that is the Sephardic wedding tradition around the Bedeccan. It's not in the bride's throne before the ceremony, but it is actually probably the very first thing that happens in the ceremony at the end of the processional. Okay. Oh, yes. I found my citation. That comes from the Smashing the Glass blog. Karen's blog. I love Karen, guys. Oh, go give Karen a follow. Smashing the Glass, and she also runs Smashing Life. She's wonderful. If you're looking for any inspiration on any aspect of any Jewish wedding, or any Jewish interfaith wedding, she has a veritable archive of stuff at Smashing the Glass. Okay, that's a site. Okay, okay. Just like many other Jewish wedding traditions, this also, this whole Bedeccan thing has sort of a crossover into another culture, 
Of course it does. Because all these rituals have have come about to communicate the emotions that pretty much universally occur when we're celebrating the marriage of two people. Okay, so I learned that in a traditional Chinese wedding ceremony, the couple serves both sets of parents tea before the wedding ceremony. And that is to show the transition of the children from their parents' households into their own brand new household, I think. If you are Chinese or if you're familiar with Chinese wedding customs and I'm wrong, please send me an email, yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com and tell me, please. But I do think that if you are planning to do the uh, tea ceremony as part of your wedding ceremony, like if you're a Chinese Jewish couple, then it would be really easy to attach a sort of bedeckin ceremony to this, either right before it or right after it, okay? So think of it as something that will allow you to transition and incorporate elements from other cultures also, like pre-ceremony elements, especially as that sort of first look slash last look moment between the two of you or transitioning from your parents' household, okay? And, you know, lastly, just a logistical point, because we did talk about in the ketubah ceremony how I want you to reserve at least 20 minutes, but hopefully 30 minutes for your ketubah ceremony. And your wedding planner also wants you to do that. It seems like a lot of time. And if everything is running on time or close to on time or perfectly, you will have some dead air around your ketubah ceremony. Okay. So this bedeckin moment that your rabbi can orchestrate or your officiant, or hey, maybe if you have like Uncle Johnny officiating your wedding, but you closely considered Cousin Linda to officiate your wedding and you want to give her something to do, you can have her orchestrate the whole ketubah ceremony and bedeckin ceremony, and it will give her a chance to do something. Maybe you don't want Cousin Linda to speak in front of hundreds of people, but maybe she can speak in front of a couple dozen people that she knows really well. It gives somebody a chance to do that. And it just adds some filler for your ketubah ceremony. And by the way, this bedeckin ceremony, I said it's not a big deal and it's not. It's You can totally omit it if you want. And it's really not a big deal to incorporate, which means that you could put it in as a maybe and just make the decision on the fly. If, if it doesn't matter that much to either of you, but maybe one of you is really dreading having a moment of silence or like some dead air or, or bored guests, God forbid, and you just want something in your back pocket that seems like it was planned and that fills that gap, then you know you can do it. And I'm going to say it for the third time in this episode. The bedeckin is a moment that what? Photographers love. So, you know, you are paying your photographer plenty. You should make him or her happy, right? Now, I I just want to put here at the end that I know that I've been talking a lot about this tradition. It is traditionally a very heteronormative thing. I've mentioned brides and grooms a lot. But guys, this is one of those rituals that is so easy to adapt. I mean, it's it's not even difficult to adapt for same-sex couples, okay? So don't worry. I've got you. And I love you. Remember, I love you, same-sex couples. If you are a same-sex couple and you're planning a Jewish wedding, please call me. I want to at least come. Can you just like invite me to the ceremony? That would make me happy. Anyway, there are a couple of resources that do offer a prefabricated reimaginings, reconstructions of these very traditionally heteronormative wedding rituals in general for same-sex couples. Okay, so the first one is ritualwell.org. That is a project of the Reconstructionist Movement, which is the movement that I was ordained through. So I really like it. Ritual Well is like rabbis and people who have written new rituals, like they do a write-up of them and then they submit them and then they, the, the person who runs the site like categorizes them and you can click and find. Listen, anybody who submitted a ritual to Ritual Well, if you have written a really hippy-dippy, weird, out there ritual, congratulations. And you know full well that it some of them can be really weird, okay? So you won't be offended that I'm explaining to people on this podcast that they might encounter some stuff that makes them feel a little weird or feel like it's a little too much, that's okay. So you just will have to sift through it. But if 
the reconstructionist movement is too liberal and too out there for you and you don't like all the stuff that it allows people to post on their ritual webpage, don't worry because I found and I was so thrilled, but I did find a website. It is, this is incredible, an analysis and exploration of how to transfer traditional Jewish wedding rituals, which are traditionally heteronormative, into wedding rituals for same-sex couples, and here's the kicker, through a halachic traditional lens. So it's a bunch of rabbis and probably a few other people who looked at all the Jewish laws and all the Jewish customs about weddings and said to themselves, how can we transfer this to a same-sex Jewish wedding, keeping the vibe, keeping the intention, and sticking as close to the original or the traditional or the Jewish legal custom as humanly possible. The website is Kol Sasson. That's K-O-L-S-A-S-S-O-N. I'm going to link it in the show notes. What is it? Kol Sasson what? Dot org? Let's find out. Kolsasson.com. Oh, no. Oops. That is the University of Maryland's premier Jewish acapella group. Okay. Okay, I'm going to find it for you live here on the podcast. Kolsasson.net. <laughs> K-O-L-S-A-S-S-O-N.net. Kolsasson, a guide to halachic same-sex weddings. It's a beautiful site, and I think you will love it, especially if you're a real nerd about um, Jewish wedding stuff like I am. And oh my gosh, if you go to the site right now, you will click on it and see two beautiful brides. Oh, they have just obviously completed half of a Bedeccan ritual because one of the brides has a veil over her face and the other one does not. How sweet. Oh, go to that website. All right. I love it. If it's not, see, I get a little schmaltzy. I get a little emotional over this stuff. I think it's so, so cool. You know, there, there's such old rituals and same-sex weddings are such a new thing. And I really think that it's such a beautiful expression of what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be a contemporary Jew, that we want so much for our same-sex couples to feel loved and embraced and welcomed and included, that we haven't said to them, let's come up with entirely new and separate rituals for you. No, we've said, you are part of of the Jewish chain of tradition that stretches back centuries. Why should you not celebrate your wedding in the same way if you want to? And I think that's beautiful. You know, in like a a rabbi, intellectual-ish, schmaltzy kind of way, I just really love that. Okay, so we've come to the end of my notes on Bedeccan. Now, I told you, I don't think I actually told you this, but I thought it was going to be a short podcast. In fact, it looks like it's going to be around an hour, just like the other ones. And you know what? That's fine because you knew what you were getting into when you started up this episode. And after all, we're not sitting together and having coffee as much as it feels like we are. And it really does. I want to tell you guys, it feels to me like I'm sitting down and having a chat with a friend, a couple other Jews, people who I've just met I want to get to know better, or maybe people I've known for a while and they were like, hey, can you tell me about this part of a Jewish wedding? And we're just chatting and having coffee. But as much as it feels like that in terms of the mood and how smiley and animated I get when I'm recording, we're not actually having coffee together. And you can pause any time. And that's one of the reasons I don't really feel bad about these long episodes. And you know, maybe one of you out there is the person who likes to hear me ramble about old country Jewish wedding customs for over an hour. And if that's you, I think that you are such a gem. And I really appreciate you being here. Not more than anybody else, but just in a different way, okay? It's so wonderful to spend this time with you. I've loved every second of it. And as always, if you have any comments you want to correct me. You want to argue with me about something. Guys, that's the Jewish way. And I want to hear every single one of your comments. I love hearing from each and every one of you. Okay. So you can email me. You can find me at your Jewish wedding podcast at gmail.com, your Jewish wedding podcast on Instagram. Me as a rabbi is your Ohio rabbi on Instagram. Listen, I love to hear from you almost as much as hearing from you. I love your ratings, your reviews. Listen, I'm not trying to make money off of this podcast, okay? I've said it before, but 
the thing is that when you leave a review or when you leave a rating on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you're listening to me, wherever my voice is piping into your ears right now, when you leave that rating, when you write that little review, it could just be like a line, but it helps other people find the podcast. And if you're planning a Jewish wedding and you have listened to an episode and you feel a little less lost now than you did before, or if you're learning something new about Jewish weddings and you really appreciate it, or for whatever reason you might like the podcast and you leave me a kind review, it helps the other person in the world who is trying to feel a little less lost about a Jewish wedding or who's really interested in learning about stuff. It helps that person find my podcast. And so it's not really helping me. It's really helping the other person out there. And if this podcast is not about connecting to one another, if it's not about helping one another navigate something that's you know, maybe not familiar to all of us. And to make connections amongst ourselves, to support one another, guys, especially as members of the Jewish community, which you most likely are, if you're listening to this podcast, whether you're a Jew, whether you're marrying into a Jewish family, and so becoming Jewish or Jewish adjacent yourself, you know, Kol Yisrael Aravim Zebazet. It's an idea that is a really enduring Jewish concept, which is that as Jews, it means all Jews are responsible for one another, but it comes from this idea that, or this knowledge that we know that there aren't very many of us in the world. And, you know, what do you need to do when you're the underdog? You got to stick together and you got to support each other. So even if you planned your Jewish wedding two years ago and you just sort of rolled across this and listened to it for fun or for something to put in your ears while you were walking the dog, but you think that there is another person getting married in the near future who might benefit from it, Take a few seconds. This is a long way of saying, you know, don't hesitate to leave that rating, to leave that review, because it probably will help another member of the Jewish community. And if we are not here for that, what are we here for anyway? All right, that's it for this week. I will see you in the next episode, which I believe is about the chuppah. Take care, everyone. Well, everyone, I have had the best time being your rabbi for this episode. I'm so glad you joined me for another little bit of insight into planning your perfect Jewish or interfaith wedding. Until you can smash that glass on your big day, you'd might as well smash that subscribe button for this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single thing. Remember, you can always find me, Rabbi Leanne, on Instagram at at your Ohio Rabbi, all one word, for even more tips, tricks, recommendations, and wisdom on Jewish weddings. If you want to work with me on your wedding, you'll find all the info you need at yourohiorabbi.com. Until next time, remember, you deserve the perfect wedding for you. Don't settle for anything less.